wrapped up a, ser- a couple of series, most of you know, if you've been around for a while, on 1 John and on 1 Peter. Today we're kicking off a new series in the book of James from the New Testament. Now these three guys are some of the most well-known disciples, probably. Most of you have heard about them, even if you haven't been following Jesus long. And they're considered to be, uh, from the story, kind of Jesus' inner circle. Now, you know, Jesus had a lot of disciples, many people that followed him through his earthly ministry, but he traveled with these 12 men that he selected. He had a core of three, and that's these three guys. And then he had the beloved, which John, he would tell you that he was Jesus' favorite. So what we wanted to do was spend our summer learning from these three that were closest to Jesus and figuring out what they might have to say. Now, it's widely accepted that this letter of James was written by James, and he's the brother of Jesus. Some of you are like, what? Jesus had brother? Yeah, Jesus had family. And so I just want you to imagine with me for a second, what would it be like to have Jesus as your sibling? Now, most of us are like, oh, that would be so great. How wonderful to just be able to hang out with Jesus all the time and hear what he had to say. We'd have bunk beds and late at night we'd talk about things and it would just be so exciting. Would it? Would it really be? There's a comedian named Michael Jr. and he he has some comments about this that I'd like to share with you briefly. He says some things like, just imagine that you're just trying to live up to your brother, Jesus. And constantly hearing things like, James, James, why can't you be more like Jesus? Why can't you be more like, well, I don't know, because he's the Messiah, maybe? Like it's a little bit of a high bar, perhaps? Or you can imagine James saying, Ma, I don't want to go hang out with Jesus right now. I mean, we go to the pool, and he's just a show off all the time. He just walks across the water and impresses everybody, and I'm, I'm just a little tired of it. I don't want to go. Or James is trying to play, play a hooky and, you know, pretend to be sick and stay home from school. Right? So, but Jesus just walks in and is like, hey, be healed. All right, you want to go? Let's go. Like, oh, come on, man. I just need a day off, Jesus. And you know, Mary's mother and loves all of her kids and wants to take care of them. So you can imagine that she's always looking for ways to just kind of encourage James a little bit. And so they'll be praying over dinner and she'll say, bless the food in James' name. Amen. Right? Probably didn't work. Or you can imagine James going to different weddings and celebrations. And, of course, Jesus turns water into wine. And James goes to the... They don't talk about the next banquet, though, where James shows up and Jesus didn't go. And so James is there. They run out of wine. Everybody's like, yo, James, you going to... I mean, your brother can... You going to... I mean, it's James Christ, right? That's your name, is it? It's not a last name. No, that's not how it works. I just think it would be a little challenging to be the sibling of Jesus. And there's some discussion about this guy and who wrote the letter. Most people say it's this guy, James, the half-brother of Jesus. And it's possibly written about seven years after the ascension of Jesus. So widely believed to be the first book or one of the first books of the New Testament, making it kind of unique. So to place in the Bible story, some scholars think that if you're reading through the story in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 11, so Acts chapter 8, where you've got Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and then you've got uh, Peter in Acts, in Acts chapter 11, kind of reporting about what's happening to the Gentiles. A lot of people think that James was written right there in that time period. It's kind of interesting, cool to think about. But James is an interesting person because he's so close, so close to Jesus himself. But actually, he wasn't always sure. If you look in John chapter 7, verse 5, there's a little verse that says that even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe him. 
I mean, you've got Mary and Joseph that had the visitations, and, but you've got these siblings that, ah, I'm not so sure about all of this. And those of you that have siblings, you can be like, yeah, I totally get it, bro. I totally understand. Not buying into this guy. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, there's just a little phrase right in there, and it says that Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. Jesus showed up for his brother. And then, of course, later, James, he'll rise to prominence in the mother church in Jerusalem, made up of the Messianic Jewish Christians. And later, James would become a martyr and giving his life for his half-brother, Jesus. Y'all, something happened. Wow, I said y'all. I think I just became a Texan. You were here for it. That's amazing. Something happened for James. He witnessed something. What would it take for you to buy into your sibling being the Messiah? Well, I think the resurrection could possibly do it. And so James witnessed it. So James is written to the church at large. It's what we call a general epistle, not written to a specific problem or addressing a specific thing. But James is writing to a church that's under pressure. There's economic uh, persecution, not martyrdom, but economic persecution, and there's oppression. And so the church is starting to break under the pressure. So here's what James is doing and where we're going over the next few weeks. James writes to comfort and encourage believers who are going through trials and temptations. We're gonna talk about that today. He's correcting some disorders and misconceptions among the believers' assemblies, the Hebrew believers. And he's going to write famously to refute the tendency to divorce faith and works, to separate those things. So Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he says, James is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut. And so that's where you're headed. Welcome to church, everybody. And here we're going to go and start with James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Here comes the punch right away. Pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature. That's how you say it if you're really mature. Mature. And complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Now, I don't know about you, but when I write an email or even a letter back in the day, I try to ease into it a little bit. Like, hey guys, how's it going? Hope you're having a great week. Wanted to talk to you about a few things. Even Paul writes, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And James kind of goes, hi, drops the bomb. Be joyful when life is really horrible. I mean, it's a punch in the gut. Now, honestly, how would you respond if you received a letter like this? Hey guys, uh, life is gonna be pretty terrible a lot of times, so go on ahead and be happy and enjoy. Are you kidding me? Bro, do you have any idea what I've been through? Do you have any idea what I'm going through right now? Are you crazy? Like, who do you think you are? And in the first section here, James gives us four realities about problems that won't be a surprise to you. Four realities about trials that'll come in your life. And if we'll embrace it, I think it can help us through the problems even that we're facing now. Number one, he says the problems are inevitable, right? He said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials. He didn't say if. He didn't say it might happen. You might possibly encounter a problem someday or trial. He says whenever. In other words, count on it. It's going to happen. You're going to have them. If you don't have problems, you got a bigger problem, you're dead. Because if you're alive, you're going to have problems. They're just a fact of life. 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. It's normal. 
sorry man, problems are a required course in life. It's not an elective. You can't get out. You can't ignore them. You can't pretend like they're not going to happen. Nobody is immune. Let us pray and go home. Just kidding. We got a little more to go. Problems are unpredictable is the next thing that he says. Problems are unpredictable. In verse 2, consider it pure joy. Brothers, whenever you face, whenever you face many trials of many kinds, that word kind of leans to the idea of falling into something unexpectedly. It's the word that's used in the story of the Good Samaritan when he fell among thieves. It's unexpected, but it happened. When we had summer blast a month ago, you know, I'm spending a month of late nights and hard work and trying to get things ready to welcome all these kids and all these wonderful leaders that helped us. And so we're working hard, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. I woke up on that morning, the first day, ready to go. Got up early, showered, ready to go to church, and I walked out the front door, and there's a drip coming from the top of my house, and my drain pan for my air conditioner was overflowing. So it was dripping down the house. I'm on my way out the door, already tired and frustrated, and now I gotta deal with this thing, or I'm gonna have water all over my ceiling when I come home. I'm so frustrated. I'm up there. I'm in the attic. I'm sweating already in my clothes, dressed for the day. I'm snaking everything that I can snake. I'm trying to rip it open. I fixed it, by the way. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Some of you are like, I didn't think he could do it, but I can. And I did. But that's the way it happens. You don't plan for it. There's no way for you to plan for a flat tire. You don't plan to get sick. You don't plan to fail a class, some of you. You don't plan to get in an accident. Like these things, they just hit us. They're unpredictable when we least expect them. That's why a problem is called a problem. And James says that's how they're gonna work. Then he says that problems come in all kinds. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, and this original word, is, it's, it kind of says multicolored is what it means. They're multicolored. Have you ever tried to paint your house or just select paint colors for your house? It's ridiculous. There are so many shades and varieties and eggshell and satin and all these pieces. And you're like, oh, is this periwinkle or is this butterfly? I don't even know what these names mean. And you're trying to select it's so many things. And he says, that's what trials are like. They, they vary in intensity. They vary in duration. Some of them are a minor inconvenience. Some of them are major crises. Some of them are made by you and you know it. <laughs> Problems come from all kinds of different places and show up in our lives. But James says that problems can have a purpose. Verse four, verse three and four. Because, consider it joy when you face them because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So if you'll trust God in the middle of it, God will use the problems in your life for his purposes. So he says a few things here, this, this idea of testing. Because you know that the testing is going to develop perseverance. Testing is important because testing purifies our faith. Testing has a way of purifying us. That word testing refers to the process where you purify gold or silver, where you got to heat it up. Heat it up really high. And as you do that, the impurities rise to the surface. And then you scrape them off and you end up with pure gold. Job 23.10 says, he has tested me through the refining fire, and I have come out as pure gold. That's what happens. You get purified. The heat makes you pure if you respond to it in the right way. Problems provide tests, and those tests can purify our faith. So when things don't go as planned, your faith has the opportunity to develop. And that's pretty incredible. When you don't feel like you want to do what's right, but you actually go ahead and do it, your faith gets developed. You're purified. But it's also possible to fail the test. And really, there's only two options here, everybody. 
you can pass the test and receive some purification and begin to grow towards maturity and completeness, or you can fail the test and grow cynical and bitter and frustrated. That's kind of the only two lanes that come out of our problems. And we have a choice to make today. He says testing produces perseverance in you, develops perseverance. Problems provide tests which produce perseverance. Some translations say patience, but it's actually not a strong enough word. It's too passive of a word for what he's saying. Because this word is not just the ability to wait. Oh, I have patience. I can just wait. I can just bear things out and wait until everything's okay. This word is the ability to turn problems into greatness. The, the, the ability to turn it around. The same way that Christian martyrs throughout history have gone to their death singing and rejoicing with a smile on their face. This perseverance, it's the ability to suffer through things and overcome them, not just be able to handle them. And I think maybe it's a trait that's lacking a little bit in our culture today because we'd rather not do it. I don't wanna do it. In fact, we do just about everything that we can to avoid the trials and the pressures. We run away from it. We pretend to ignore it. It's not there. It's not happening. It's not happening. It's not happening. We drink. We, we take drugs. We, we binge Netflix for hours on end. We scroll mindlessly and endlessly. Some of us go to Disneyland. <laughs> we, we, do, we do whatever we can to just get away from the pressure. But how does God teach us perseverance? Have you ever made the mistake of asking God to teach you patience? Oh, you have. <laughs> Yeah, it's the worst. Suddenly, every driver in front of you is the slowest person in the world. And it's everywhere that you go. My entire family is convinced that God is actively teaching me patience all the time. Because if Maria drives the car, we go fast and we go everywhere. But if I drive the car, suddenly, every driver in front of me is the slowest. And they're like, Dad, if you would just relax, if you would just be kind, if you would just be patient. And I'm like, be quiet! I'm a pastor. I know how to be patient. <laughs> ah, I'm a work in progress, everybody. In lines at the grocery store, when you have kids, <laughs> during the difficult and enduring waiting periods of your life, that's how you learn perseverance. Problems and pressure are how God does it. If you keep avoiding the problems, pretending like the testing isn't there, acting like it's not happening and trying to ignore it, what you're doing is just avoiding growth. And you're missing the opportunity that God wants for you because perseverance makes me grow. Perseverance grows me up. Verse four, perseverance must finish its work so you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now some translations use the word perfect instead of mature. And, and we get off track when we read perfect because we're like, well, then I'm out, man. Forget it. This verse doesn't apply to me because I can't be perfect. I'm not perfect. I'll never be perfect. Nobody can be perfect. Well, nobody besides my wife, Maria. Nobody else can be perfect. It's the idea, though, of being whole and complete. It has nothing to do with perfection. It's the idea of being whole, of being complete, of having integrity, of being one thing on the stage and one thing off the stage. So my life is the same no matter what I'm doing or where I'm going. What you see in me is what you get. That's the goal here. So I don't represent Jesus in one way here, and then when I'm driving behind somebody on the road, I act like something else. I don't do that anymore because my life is whole. I have integrity. 
my faith, my thoughts, my speech, my finances, my relationships, all of it are together. They are one. They are the same because Jesus came into my life and he is making my life whole. There's a pastor named Warren Wearsby, a commentator, and here's what he says about this. He says, not everybody who grows old grows up. There's a vast difference between age and maturity. Ideally, the older we are, the more mature we should be, but too often the ideal does not become the real. And the result is problems. (laughs) Problems in personal lives, in homes, and in churches. As a pastor, I see more problems in these areas caused by immaturity than by anything else. If Christians would just grow up, they would become victors instead of victims. The epistle of James was written to help us understand and attain spiritual maturity. It's a beautifully crafted punch in the gut. God's long-term goal, his ultimate purpose for you on the earth is spiritual maturity. God wants us to grow up, to be mature, not lacking anything. Yeah, but Brent, doesn't God want me to be happy? I mean, all in all, doesn't God just want me to be happy here on the earth and to be fulfilled in my life and to kind of enjoy what I'm doing in life? Sort of. But he's much more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. And the prevailing worldview that we live in, is some, and even Christians, is something that we call moralistic therapeutic deism. And most people live this way. They may not even know it, but moralistic means God just wants me to be good. That's all this is about. He says, therapeutic, so God just wants me to be happy. He just wants my life to be full. And then deism, which means that there is a God in the world, but he's not involved, he's not close, he's somewhere out there, he's not right here. And each of those things is not accurate. And James is pushing back on that with this word in the Greek, this word for mature, it's teleos, and here's what it means. It means morally perfect. This is where we're headed. It means genuine or being true. It can mean physically perfect. Hey, hey. It can mean, why was that funny? That should not have been funny. Uh, I am doing my best, all right, everybody? It means completed or finished. It means mature in one's behavior. It means being an adult. It means being initiated or one inducted into the believing community. This is the word mature. This is the word perfect the word teleos. And I think what James is getting at is, is that problems make perfect. You were raised hearing that practice makes perfect, Eh, maybe, but I think problems can make perfect in your life. So our attitudes and trials, when we hit the problem, it has to be informed by our understanding that God is actively doing something here. And if you get that, You won't crumble under the weight of the problem or the trial that's hitting you. Because problems, everybody, are not always what you think they are. Have you ever met that guy? That guy that everything is a problem in life? Like nothing is good? Like, hey man, you just want a new car. Oh boy, I'm gonna have to pay taxes on that. The registration's gonna be a lot. Oh my gosh. What's wrong with you? Everything is always bad. Problems aren't always what you think they are, no matter how they come to you. You created it, the enemy came in, whatever it is, God has a test that he wants to give you to help you grow. Like, no matter where it came from, they don't have to turn you into something else. They don't have to turn you into something terrible to wreck you, to make you feel frustrated, to to depress you, to make you act out in life. That doesn't have to happen. Trials can make you 
perfect, whole, complete, mature. And problems make perfect if you'll trust God through the middle of them. More on that in a minute. Teleos, that word mature, perfect, it appears seven times in this book of James. So it's a big deal to James. It matters to him. And I think he keeps saying it because he knows that most of us don't live whole lives. We actually live fractured lives. Like I'm one way at the church, but I'm one way at work. I'm one way when I'm with my, with my family. I'm another way when I'm with my buddies, and especially that one buddy that just gets me in trouble all the time. Like I, I, I live a fractured life, and that's what he's trying to get at. No, you can't live that way. God is on a mission to, to, to put together, to restore fractured people and make them whole, to make them like Jesus. What happens, and I see this a lot as a pastor, is people start following Jesus. Everything's going great. This is amazing. My life is great. I got saved. I got no problems. And then they run into their first problem and they say, oh, well, I guess it wasn't true. God doesn't really love me. I guess this thing isn't real. Maybe I'm not even saved. Maybe I'm not a Christian. I guess the whole thing maybe was a lie. No, 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 no. Even longtime believers run into problems and go, well, I'm just having a struggle in my faith and I just don't know if I believe in any of this anymore. No, this is not the reality, everybody. What's happening is you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Problems are going to come, and you're where you're supposed to be. You are in active character development. God is actively working to help you be mature. He's making you like Jesus. But if you don't realize that, you're going to blame it on something else, and you're going to miss the opportunity. You're going to say, something is wrong, but it may not be wrong. God just may be actively growing you to make you more like him. And it's pretty incredible. If you don't pay attention to it, you're going to miss what he wants to do, and you're just going to stay immature. Romans 8, 28 says, and you know it, we know in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Doesn't say all things are good. That's not true. It doesn't say that God is going to bring bad things into your life and he's going to teach you a lesson. That's not what it says. People often think that's what God does, but that's not how he operates. Look, I got three kids and if that's what I did, if I just threw bad things at them to try to teach them something, I'd be a horrible parent, possibly go to jail. That's not what I do as a parent. Now, what I do want for my kids is I want to put them in uncomfortable positions and circumstances while I am there to watch over them and help them so that they can grow. And God does the same thing with you and I. So when the Bible says God's will in all things work for things for my good, this is a promise. And it means that everything that God does is good. And you've heard this before, but I genuinely believe it. If you're looking at your life going, well, my life's not good. Okay, that's fine. It just means God's not done. If it's not good, he's not done. He's still working because he does all things good. So the power, though, of this and the, the power of Romans 28 happens, I think, in the next verse in 29. I'm going to read it in the message version. It says, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. He decided from the beginning, I'm going to shape your life to be like the life of my son, Jesus. So why do all things work together for good in our lives? So that he can make me like Jesus. And that's why I can say, count it all joy when life goes off the rails. And that's what James wants you to know about your problems. My hope and prayer for you today is that you can start to reframe your problems. Reframe even the tough situation that you're going through right now, here today in this room reframe it that God is doing more than you realized he's doing and you can actually follow the insane advice of James who says count it all joy when you hit it I want you to think man reframe it I got 
I got 99 problems. But immaturity ain't one. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay, we'll move on from that lyric. Some of you are like, what? It's fine. I promise it's fine. Jesus. Okay, as we, as we wrap this up, though, uh, what does James tell us that we should do? Okay, we, I understand it. It's going to happen. God's at work. That's amazing. What should we do with our problems? Well, there's three things. Three practical things. And actually, some people say that James is kind of like a how-to manual for living the Christian life. Three things that I want you that hopefully can be practical for you to apply today if you're going through a problem. Number one, you already know, we've read it many times. He says, count it pure joy. And it sounds so stupid. This is so hard. I'm going through the worst time of my life. This is really challenging. Count it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. Pure. Pure joy whenever you face trials. Like, don't fake it. Don't just put a smile on. Don't pretend. Don't gut it out. I'm just going to be strong. I'm just going to make it through it. Don't hide how you really feel. That's how a lot of people come to church, by the way. Just showing up. It's all good. I'm good. I got this all together. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> Bless God. You just had a blowout fight, just World War III in the car with your spouse. What's wrong with you? I don't even know why. Why are you acting like your mother? Just as an aside, don't ever say that. Why do you always, I can't even believe the hey, glory be to God. How you doing today, brother? So glad to have the family here. Looking forward to worship today. Ridiculous. Don't do that. That's not how you handle the problem. And that's how we tend to handle the problem. But God doesn't ever ask you to deny reality. He doesn't want you to ignore what's happening. He's not saying pretend that it's not there. Nor is he saying, hey, you should go and seek out suffering. Because whenever you suffer, you're just getting better. Oh, I just feel so spiritual when I feel so bad. That's not where he's going with this. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying rejoice for the problem. No, we rejoice in the problem. And we miss this sometimes. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Notice that it's, it's not for everything give thanks. It's in everything give thanks. Why would I thank God for sickness? I'm not gonna do that. God thanks that I am so sick. Hey God, thanks for that amazing accident that I had. I really am enjoying biking to work, the rising insurance costs, and the medical bills that I can't pay. Thank you so much for that. No, 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 no. But what you do instead is, God, thank you for rescuing my life. I'm, so, I'm, I'm bummed that the car is gone and I don't know how I'm gonna pay for that, but thank you that I had a car. Thank you that you have a plan for me. Thank you that I don't know how I'm gonna pay the bills, but God, I know you've got my back. So God, in the middle of this trouble and difficulty and the horrible stuff that I'm going through right now, I just wanna say thank you because I know you're gonna work this out for my good. When is the last time you did that? I, don't, I can't tell you the last time I did it because it's really hard. It doesn't even make sense. We give thanks in everything. We know that God can take the bad and bring out good. You might have caused the problem yourself. He can still do it. The enemy may have rushed in and come at you and come after you. He can still do it. Somebody else may have done something to you and you're facing a trial because of somebody. He can still do it. Culture may be pressing in on you. He can still do it. And he wants to do it. The source of your problems doesn't actually matter that much, everybody. 
God can still use all of them for your growth and for his glory. But notice it's a choice. It's always a choice. James said, consider it pure joy. Consider it. Look at it. Deliberate it. Evaluate it. Make up your mind about it once and for all. In this circumstance, I'm going to count it all joy. I'm considering it joyful. You can always choose how you respond to your problems. And James says, your response should be rejoice, even if it sounds ridiculous to you. And you can Because what starts to happen is your perspective shifts from your current life to what God's really doing in the coming future. This whole thing that I'm living through right here, this isn't the most important thing. God's anticipated future for me, my eyes are on that, and so I can count it all joy because I'm growing. The second thing, why don't you guys come on up, we'll close. The second thing, the first is consider it joy. The second is, he says, ask for wisdom. I know, I'm just teaching what the passage says. <clears throat> James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. So when you're in the middle of it, one of the most important things that you can do is just ask him. Ask him for wisdom. God, what should I do here? What am I supposed to do? What direction do I go? But is that your first response to most of your problems? It's not mine. Most of the time I'm not get hit with a brick wall and say, oh, wow, oh, Father, what wouldst thou have me to do today in response to this trial upon their which I am foregoing at this moment? I don't do that. You know what I do? I complain. I can't believe this. I can't believe they would do that. That guy's an idiot. I, why, I can't even, I whine. <laughs> why? A gossip. Do you know? Do you do you know what they did? Sometimes I withdraw. Like I don't even know what to do, so I'm just I'm just going to hang back. I don't withdraw from relationships. Withdraw from the house of God. Withdraw withdraw from Him. I don't want I don't want to spend time with you. I don't I don't know. I don't know what this is. That's how I respond a lot of times. James says, "Don't do that. Don't do it." Brent, why why would I pray for wisdom? Shouldn't I just pray to get out of the thing that I'm in? Yes, you can, and you should do that. But if you go straight to that, you're gonna miss the opportunity for you to grow, to be mature, to become complete and whole, lacking nothing. And I'm just telling you, God is so good that if you skip the lesson this time, there's probably another lap that's just coming for you. (laughs) If you don't learn it this time, you're gonna have to try again because God is so loving that he will give you another opportunity to be mature. So you don't have to be overwhelmed when you don't understand what God is doing. You can ask God for wisdom. When you get smacked in the face, God, give me wisdom with how to respond. And would you give me wisdom on what you're doing and how I can apply that to my life today? And the last thing is, super simple, but I think we struggle with it, believe in him. So count it pure joy, ask for wisdom and believe in him. Verse six, but when you ask for wisdom, you must believe. Don't doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. This doubting that James talks about, we kind of consider ourselves again to be out because, well, that's not me, because I got questions about this whole thing, man. But that's not the doubting that James is referring to. This isn't the guy who wonders, does God answer prayer? I don't know. 
That's not what he's talking about. Nor is he talking about that lady who's just an introspective doubter. And she's like, I got questions and I'm struggling right now in my faith. That's not who he's talking about either. The person he's talking about is the person who is double-minded. What it means is I got, my, I got one hand in the world and I got one hand in the kingdom. I want to do what I want to do and I want to think what I want to think, say what I want to say, go where I want to go. But I also want to pray a little bit so I get some fire insurance and maybe don't end up in hell one day. Like I want both things and I'm double-minded. And he says, well, that's not gonna work out. If you live that way, you're gonna get smacked around and tossed like a wave in the sea. And you're not gonna know what's up or what's down. He says, don't be that way. Don't grasp onto both. Be single-minded, be whole. So I think you believe in him. Believe in him. In other words, you trust, you put your full faith in him. You just relax. Oh, I don't know how it's gonna turn out. I don't know. Relax, he's got it. Yeah, but I gotta take control of this and I gotta, relax. I grew up in Colorado and uh, going to Colorado, you got opportunities for bouldering, some rappelling, you know, rappelling down the side of a mountain or you do ropes course, high ropes to go on a missions trip or something. So you do some training. And so what you do when you rappel down a cliff is you put on the harness, right? And then you clip in carabiner and a rope and you, you clip into it and, and you, you just, you trust this thing for safety. And so you're strapped in and you got somebody that's holding on to you and you have to trust that it's gonna hold you. But people don't. They get up there on the wall, they strap in, they got the rope, they gotta lean back and they gotta go down and they're afraid to because it's a long way down. And so they don't trust. They don't sit down on the harness and let it hold them. And so what they do is they try to do it themselves. Stiff-legged, legs shaking, freaking out, grabbing on the rope. Well, the rope's just connected to another person. So they're going, ah, ah, ah. Like, this doesn't work if you don't trust it. And they're fighting against the harness, trying to do it themselves, and it doesn't work. They end up smacking into the wall, and they can't get down. The way that you do it is, you just sit down in the harness. <laughs> and you let the harness carry the full weight of your body. You put your legs out, you trust it, and you just rappel down the wall. And this is what he's talking about here. Don't doubt, put your full weight in him. Put your full trust and sit down in it. <laughs> sit down, let go of the rope, man. Just sit down in it and be okay because he'll hold you, he's got you. Let God work, trust that he knows what the best thing is for your life. Trust that you're not going through a problem for no reason. Trust that he's building and working in you leading you to perseverance. And when that work gets finished, you become perfect, mature, whole, a life of integrity. I'm the same no matter how you catch me. When I run into a problem, I'm gonna be the same as when I'm living fancy free. Fancy free, what does that even mean? I don't know. Doesn't matter what's going on in the circumstances of my life. When you catch me, I'm whole. Why? Because I trusted God to do this process in me. And lastly, that is how it works, by the way. Hebrews 12, one and two, let us run with perseverance, there it is again, the race that's marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So just in case you got it twisted today, there's nothing that you can do when you run into the problem. You have to trust him. You can't mature yourself. You can't gain wholeness on your own. He is the pioneer and the perfecter of your faith. Sit in it. Let him lead you there. Would you stand up with me? We're gonna enter back into worship. 
And the reason that we do this, we separate worship, is so that you can hear the word, let the spirit of God work in you, and then you can respond to it. So, so I just wanna invite you to respond. Your response may be just to worship there in your seat with hands lifted, trusting God and casting your cares and your problems on him and watching him work. Your, your response may be to kneel or to bow. Or maybe for some of you, your response needs to be to come down here to the front and receive prayer. In fact, prayer team, come right now. And close your eyes for just a second, if you don't mind, because I just want you to take stock of your life. Where are you at? Are you sitting in the middle of massive problems? Well, he's got a plan. <laughs> so some of you, you just say, my life is full of problems. 99 problems, I got a lot more than 99 problems. And I just, I need some help. It's great, it's a good place to start. So we're gonna consider it joy, but maybe you need to come down and ask somebody to pray with you about that and pray about those problems because you need help today. Pray that God will give you a new perspective. For others of you, maybe you need wisdom to understand what, what's happening, what do I do next? Well, come down here and let somebody pray with you about that. Some of you need to learn how to sit in the harness and just let God carry the weight of you trust him. You're having a hard time doing that. Well, you know what? Here at this altar, you can give your life away as you pray with these people and, and God can do something and help you do that. Or just anything else that you need prayer for you're going through. These guys would love for you to come down and pray as we worship. So I want to invite you and encourage you to just respond in some way. So Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you've got plans and purposes. Forgive us for trying to do things on our own today. We want to count it all joy. So as we worship you, would you help us and teach us? We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's worship together.